How's everybody doing? It's good to see y'all. It's an interesting point Alejandro makes because one of the fun things about studying God's Word is if you study it, I know this sounds like duh, but if you study it, you truly do learn a lot, right? Like even, um, you know, going into Matthew, before we started this study, if you'd have asked me, I'd have said, yeah, Jesus, he regularly was in conflict with the religious leaders of his time. Like, I'd have told you that. I knew that. But as we've been studying Matthew, and especially the past six weeks or so, it's been even stronger of an emphasis. Like, something I already knew has just been highlighted and just shown in a much more vivid sense. In the weeks that we've been studying the passion of Christ, the week leading up to the crucifixion of Christ, as Matthew records it here, we're just really seeing these conflicts over and over, and they just become stronger and stronger, and it really becomes a centerpiece of what we've been looking at. And as we continue in Matthew 23, that doesn't slow down, that doesn't um, stop or be diminished or eased up. And if anything, as we see this morning, it ramps up even more. It becomes even stronger until it ultimately culminates in the crucifixion of Christ. In Matthew 23, that's where we're at, so turn to Matthew 23 if you're not there yet. But we started this chapter on Wednesday night, verses 1 to 12, and Jesus is making a very important point. He's making a big issue out of the sinful pride and out of the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, this shouldn't be a new group of people to you if you've been with us studying, um, We've come across the scribes and the Pharisees over and over again. The scribes being those lawyers, those experts in the Mosaic law. The Pharisees being that um, sect of Judaism that was very prominent during the life of Jesus Christ on earth. And um, those, that group that attempted to justify themselves by works. It was a legalistic based system where they thought by meticulous meticulously keeping the law of God that maybe somehow they could earn their way to being back in right relationship with God. They could justify themselves with their works. That's what they attempted to do. But while we've been looking a lot at the scribes and the Pharisees, Alejandro made an absolutely critical point, not just this morning, but on Wednesday night as well. He made an extremely critical point for us and that was this it's easy for us to look at these passages and to sit back and think oh man those pharisees they were bad they missed the point it's easy for us to sit back and judge the pharisees but guess what in this room right now are there any pharisees like literally i don't mean like metaphorically speaking but like the pharisees they're dead and gone right The Pharisees, they're not in here today. The Pharisees are dead and gone. And so if this passage, if what Jesus is saying here and what Matthew records for us was simply a lesson for the Pharisees, then really who cares, right? Because they're dead and gone. Can't do them any good anymore. But this is recorded in God's eternal word because exactly the point Alejandro made Wednesday night repeatedly in exactly what he was re-emphasizing for us this morning, 
the point is for us to look at this and to recognize the sinfulness of human pride, the sinfulness of man-made religion, and the sinfulness of hypocrisy, and to examine our own hearts. Are we genuine followers of Christ? When it comes to the righteousness that we claim, is it the righteousness of Christ applied to our life through faith? Or do we have some kind of delusion about our own goodness and our own worthiness that in reality, if it's examined, is nothing but sinful pride and hypocrisy? Can we be tempted to false religion today? To legalism? Can we be tempted to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can we be tempted to developing our own systems and our own ways of thinking of how God works and our own thoughts about God that aren't based on truth? For sure. Absolutely. Can we be tempted to be hypocrites? All the time, right? The lessons in what Jesus is really attacking the Pharisees for and what he's teaching all his disciples about are as applicable today as they were at any other point in history. And so... The challenge is for us to recognize these temptations and tendencies in our own hearts and to repent of those things, turn from them, and turn to Christ. Allow God to search our hearts. Look for those areas of sinful pride, those areas where we fail to put on the humility that comes with genuine faith in Christ. Look for those tendencies in our own life towards hypocrisy, and to repent of those things and turn from them. Now in verses 1 to 12 that we looked at Wednesday night, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. He says in verse 1, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. So it's an interesting setting because here he's talking to his disciples, but he's talking to them about the Pharisees who were going to be there listening as well. Right? So it's kind of like a double audience here. Jesus is teaching his disciples, but the Pharisees hear it. But now, as we come to verse 13 this morning, we come to Jesus turns his attention, and he's no longer talking simply to his disciples, but now he is directly addressing the Pharisees. Now, his disciples could still hear this. This was still a lesson, something that Jesus wanted everybody to hear, everybody to learn from, and everybody to understand, but he turns his attention directly to the Pharisees. And his language becomes very sharp, very harsh. Language that should really startle us and get our attention and, and wake us up. And the thing is, like I've said, the Pharisees are really just a type of false religion, a type of legalism, a type of man-made attempts to earn your favor with God, but this is the reality of anything other than the gospel, right? There's only two forms, if you will, of religion in the world. There is what just about everything falls into, which is earn your way back to God, follow the rules, you can be good enough, which we know is false, and then the only alternative to that is true faith in Christ, 
The gospel which recognizes, no, we are all helpless sinners in and of ourselves, but God loved us enough to send his son to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins so that his righteous life could be credited to us through faith. And so while Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, this applies to any form of man-made religion. And as he turns his focus to them, he's going to really hit them hard with eight separate woes. Now, some of your Bibles may say seven, seven woes, and that's fine. You can go with that. We'll uh, talk about that in just a moment here. Um, so, but we're going to go with eight woes, okay? And what are woes? Like, what is this? When Jesus says, woe to you, woe to you, what is he saying? What is Jesus saying when he looks to them and says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees? Well, it's a pronouncement of, of doom. It's a lamentation. It's a recognition that because of your sinful pride and your self-righteousness, you are condemned to destruction. It's that. It's it. It, 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 some things in life are an inconvenience, right? Like some mistakes, there's different levels of mistakes that you can make in life. Sometimes they're just an inconvenience. Some things, though, are utterly destructive. Some things are an inconvenience. You know, being born with a crippled body part, that's an inconvenience, right? If part of your body doesn't work properly, but you can still go live on in this earth and have a perfectly full life, you know, being born with maybe not a great sense of humor or something, you know, that might be inconvenient. There's plenty of things that can be inconvenient in life. But here, getting the gospel wrong, if you get the gospel wrong, that is the one thing that you cannot get incorrect because the results are eternally catastrophic. It's much more than an inconvenience. That's why Jesus pronounces these woes. Because, because of the Pharisees' rejection of Christ in the gospel, there is no alternative for them but to experience eternal death. That is, the eternal process of dying, the eternal process of being separated from God, our only source of life. That was the problem for the Pharisees, but it's the problem again for any of us who reject Jesus Christ. And Christ announced this through eight separate woes. This morning, we're just going to look at the first five of these eight, and we'll do it one by one. The first woe, the condemnation of their false religion condemnation of their false religion verse 13 jesus says but woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people for you do not enter it yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites why were they hypocrites well, they were the ones who claimed to know everything about God. They were the ones who looked on the outside the most perfect. They were the most religious, the most pious. They were the ones who everybody looked to and the ones who said they had it all together. They had God figured out is what they said. 
But the reality is they were shutting themselves off from the kingdom of God. They were deceived. They were totally deceived as to what true righteousness was. You could go ask a Pharisee, what's righteousness? And they would have a good answer for you, a well-thought-out, in their mind, answer. And they could tell you all the laws and all the things they should keep and all the things that you should do if you wanted to be righteous. They had an answer for it. But the reality is they had no clue what true righteousness is. Because true righteousness is a change of heart. It's a heart that has been renewed and cleansed by Jesus Christ, renewed by the Holy Spirit. But the Pharisees operated at a superficial level, which is why Jesus calls them hypocrites whose blindness was going to keep them out of the kingdom of God. They were deceived. In verse 13, Jesus says, because of this blindness, they're unable to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But believe it or not, it actually gets worse. Because it's hard to imagine at this point if Jesus is telling you, woe are you, woe is you, because you are eternally doomed. You are eternally destined for destruction because of your false religion. It's hard to think it can get much worse at that point, but it actually does get worse. Because here's the thing, not only were the Pharisees themselves shutting off the kingdom of heaven to themselves, not only were they failing to enter in, but they were becoming a stumbling block that was keeping others out as well. It wasn't just their own deception that they held on to, but they taught this deception and spread it to others, to the results that Jesus, the result that Jesus says in verse 13, not only do they not enter in, but they don't allow others to go in. Now, this is a major tragedy. This is a significant charge. How much does God love people? So much that he sent his son to die on the cross. And how much, how important to God is his own glory? Tremendously important. It's the reason we were created, was to have fellowship with God and to glorify him. And what the religion of the Pharisees and any other false system of religion does is it shuts off both of those things. People can't come back to fellowship with God because the only way back to fellowship through God, with God is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it cuts off those people from worshiping God in the way they should and living for him in the way they should. How does God feel about, and this is important for us to think about, how does God feel about those who would lead others astray when it comes to the truth. He has, Jesus himself had some very scary words about this, right? Luke 17. Jesus is talking to his disciples in Luke 17. And this is what he says in verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. 
Those are pretty strong words. How serious does God take it when we cause one another to stumble? It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck, a huge stone tied around your neck, and to be thrown into the sea. So for the Pharisees to be spreading this false teaching, this is a major, major problem. It's a major reason why they are such a target for the anger of Christ. Because God hates false religion. And he hates those who would spread it and shut off others from coming in to the kingdom of God. That brings us to verse 14, the second woe. Now, at this point, there could be some confusion. Does anybody have the English Standard Version? Somebody's got to, right? ESV? All right. So what's the heading for your section say? Seven woes. And what's my Bible? Who's got the the New American Standard? What's yours say? Eight woes. What's going on here? All right. Drew, read to me verse 14, if you will. What? It's not there, is it? What? You really do have verse 14? Oh, no, it's not there. All right, that was my point. Sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was like, wait a second. This whole thing falls apart. <laughs> yeah. So if you have the ESV, it just skips 13 to 15, right? Yeah. It just skips 14 altogether. And then if you have the New American Standard like I do, there's a bracket. Do you all see the brackets there? around verse 14 and it says um, there's a footnote that says this verse is not found in the early manuscripts so do we just panic and freak out at this point no so why first let's just start with this okay why in the new american standard does it have verse 14 here well the Gospel of Mark was written first, and if you look at Mark 12:40, it's basically this verse. It's basically this pronouncement against the Pharisees, and it really fits in well with what with um, Matthew 23 and the eight woes or the seven other woes of the Pharisees. And so, there's somehow this became inserted and not the earliest of manuscripts, not written by Matthew, but somehow just somebody put it in one of the earlier copies. Because remember how the Bible, like, you didn't go, like, double-click on a file and click print, right? Or, like, it wasn't these days if, you know, Pastor Dusty writes a book or something, then he sends it to a publisher and they print out thousands of copies. No, Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, and this is how all the Bible came about. And then it got passed around to scribes. So don't get that exactly mixed up with the scribes that Jesus is condemning here. But there was just a profession of people. It was their job to sit around and just make copies of anything. Like it, there's a lot of different types of uh, literature they were making copies of. But the Bible would have been one of those, right? And so you end up with just thousands and thousands of copies, which is really a good thing because now today there's people, their whole job, their doctor, PhDs and, and universities and seminaries, and all they do is go look at the oldest copies of the Bible and they compare them, contrast them, they look at them from all different area, geographic areas of the ancient world to make sure we have as reliable 
copies of the Bible today as we possibly can. And if you compare the Bible to any other ancient text, like probably the second most popular you could think of is like Homer or Plato, like some of the other ancient Greek texts, like we have very literally 10 to 15 times as much evidence for what we have in today's Bible in comparison to like even the second best ancient text. So this fact that there were so many copies being made is really a great thing today because we have an extremely high level of confidence in the words that we have. But what likely happened with verse 14 here, and this is where Brandon starts to speculate a little, okay? But like what I think probably happened with verse 14 here is it matches, this section matches up so well with Mark 12, 40. Like how many of y'all make notes in your Bibles? You make notes, right? And like, I, there's, it's undoubtable that some of the early people with their early copies of the Bible made notes too, right? And probably some prominent scribe made a note here that, hey, this is like Mark 1240, you know, like reference Mark 1240 because Mark was written first. People would have known about it and had it already. And then that copy just gets taken over and over again. And so while our most reliable and um, earliest manuscripts do not have verse 14, there's a whole lot of older copies out there that do have verse 14, essentially Mark 1240 inserted into it. And it it became such a common thing that once we realized, hey, this looks like something that somebody inadvertently, or maybe not inadvertently, but without intention of it becoming part of the Bible, inserted in at a later date, it was such a part of tradition that it just, in a lot of modern translations, we just keep it there, but make note that, hey, probably Matthew did not include this in the earliest manuscripts. Now, should we really worry about that? Let me, I'm going to say no for a few reasons. For one thing, we know it wasn't actually part of what Matthew originally wrote. Like, does that make sense? Like, we, it's not like this is something that we're looking at and thinking, oh, this was part of Matthew, and then all of a sudden we discover, well, no, it's not. Like, no, we, we know this. We know that this wasn't um, part of the original writing of Matthew. Second thing, what it teaches is completely, is, first of all, it's from Mark, so it's still completely biblical. It very much, you can see why they inserted it here, because it very much fits the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, and the teaching is absolutely consistent with biblical teaching. It's not saying anything wrong or anything that changes the meaning. And when it comes to these verses, like, did you know this isn't the only thing that you'll find in the New American Standard with brackets around it, where we're like, hey, this wasn't part of the original transcript, it became part of the tradition, but it became such a part of tradition, we kept it? Like, did you know there's other parts that are like that? And let's say that makes you nervous, and you're like, you know, I'm just going to completely ignore those parts, like the ESV does that's perfectly fine. I did some rough math, so if one of you goes home with the computer and figures out I'm wrong, okay. I just did some rough Brandon math real quick. But based on rough Brandon math, the number of words, and I just went with Matthew. I didn't go to the whole New Testament, but just Matthew. The number of words in Matthew that fall into this category in brackets is 0.03% of Matthew. 
So not less than 1%, less than half a percent, less than a tenth of a, per- of a percent. It's like 0.03%. So you're perfectly fine to ignore those and just move on because 99.97, we are very confident Matthew originally wrote for us. Does that make sense? It's just a very interesting thing that comes up in the subject of textual criticism when it comes to um, the Bible. But when you study it and you realize what's really going on, you're like, wait a second. What we have is actually ultra, ultra reliable. In fact, it's so incredibly reliable with so much evidence that we can pinpoint a verse like this we can pinpoint it down to like 0.03 percent of the gospel of matthew and be like okay we're we're up to 99.97 percent confidence that we have the words so confident that we can say like actually this part probably wasn't there i think that's absolutely remarkable and there's nothing else in the world from this time period that comes within a million miles of that level of confidence. But what is, if we keep it here, what is the second woe? It's a, it's a woe to the Pharisees for loving self and not others. Loving self and not others. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will, you will receive greater condemnation. Two parts here. The first part, and they don't love others. He says, you devour widows' houses. Devouring widows' houses, that's to mistreat, steal, take financial advantage of widows. Especially in ancient society, widows were extraordinarily vulnerable. Extraordinarily vulnerable. And in fact, because of this, the New Testament that gives the church a lot of commands when it comes to taking care of widows. Recognizing the vulnerability in the ancient world, especially of widows, the New Testament church was told, love them, look out for them, take care of them, provide for them if they don't have anybody else. Instead, the Pharisees saw them as easy prey, easy people to financially take advantage of. And Jesus condemns this lack of love. In fact, it wasn't just that the lack of love that Jesus condemns. It was instead of properly loving others, they loved themselves. And they display this love of self through these long public prayers. Long public prayers performed not for the purpose of honoring God and not for the purpose of worshiping God, but for the purpose of glorifying themselves. They wanted to draw attention to themselves. They wanted everybody through these long public prayers to say, wow, look how religious they are. Look how pious they are. Look how, look how close to God and spiritual they must be. But the reality is the opposite. It was the hypocrisy again, that outward facade where, sure, it might look that way on the outside, but on the inside, instead of loving God, they were loving themselves. 
I think this is an easy trap for us to relate to, isn't it? Like, how easy is it when we serve in the church or do something in the, in the church to fall into that trap of, oh, I hope somebody sees this. I hope somebody sees how good I'm doing. Like, I'm going to go pick up that trash left over on Wednesday night, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till Alejandro's paying attention. And then I'm going to go do it, right? Because then he'll tell me how good I am. Or I'm going to serve. I want to serve, but I really hope people notice so people tell me what a good kid I am. We all fall into this trap, right? And it's something we have to be so sensitive to. I notice even in my own life, I try really, really, really hard to fight against this desire for people to say, hey, look how good of a job Brandon is doing. And oh, wow, Brandon's fantastic. I fight really, really hard. And by God's grace and just vigilance and trying, I, I believe God very largely gives me victory over that. But even in my best of deeds where I can look and see like 98%, 99% pure motives, there's like that one shady percent that always tries to creep on in that I have to be like, oh, there it is again. I can feel it. It's just such a sinful tendency of the human heart that we have to be on guard of. But the Pharisees, see, here's the difference. They weren't on guard. They indulged in it. That was what they were all about, was the praise of men. Our example is Christ and to do the opposite of that. Our third woe in verse 15. They were zealous for what was wrong. They were zealous for what was wrong. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte and when he becomes one you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves what's a proselyte first of all you gotta know what that is to understand this verse a proselyte was just a non-jewish a gentile convert to the jewish religion somebody who ethnically wasn't a jew but they recognized, hey, Yahweh is the true God. And uh, think about Ruth, right? Um, she was a Moabite, but she recognized Yahweh was the true God. And so they give their life to following the Jewish religion. <clears throat> well, the Pharisees were very zealous for converting people, not the true following of Yahweh, but to their version of Judaism. They were zealous for their religion. They were missionaries. They were missionaries. Uh, verse 15 says they would travel land and sea. They would go wherever they needed to go. They would do whatever it took. They were very zealous, very excited and enthusiastic. And as people, we get drawn to that, you know? We get drawn to enthusiasm, and we think of zealousness and excitement and enthusiasm is a good thing, and a lot of times it is, but enthusiasm and zeal is only as good as the object of that enthusiasm and zeal, and in the case of the Pharisees, it was their false religion, their legalism, their pride, their hypocrisy, and being zealous for a bad thing is always a bad thing. Your zeal and your excitement is only as good as the object of that zeal 
and excitement. Verse 15 says, they would go find someone to be a proselyte. And he says, when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Think about just how the language that Jesus is using here. That, that they will not, in verse 13, go into the kingdom of heaven. That in verse 14, they're going to receive greater condemnation. In verse 15, they are sons of hell. Not sons of the kingdom, not those destined for the kingdom of God, but sons of hell, those destined to separation from God. Think about how impactful these charges from Jesus would be to the Pharisees and to those who are hearing because to the Pharisees, I think there's a lot of self-deception there. I mean, they're obviously deceived, but I think more often than not, people are self-deceived. Like, they really bought in to their false system of religion, and they thought, we are good. We are doing the right things. And Jesus comes in and says the exact opposite. Jesus doesn't come in and say, hey, you need a little bit of tweaking here and there. Or, hey, you know, you got a lot of things right, but, you know, maybe change up a little bit here and there. Jesus comes in and says, you are condemned. You are a son of hell. For the Pharisees, that would have just been earth-shattering. They, they would have been shocked to hear that they were not just a little bit off, but completely wrong about who God is. But it would have been shocking, not just for them, but for all who were listening. Remember, the disciples are there. The people of the villages and the towns are there. All of Jerusalem is there, hearing that these great Pharisees, these icons of law-keeping, these icons of supposed righteousness, are condemned sons of hell. And now we are on woe number four. Woe number four. And this is a longer one, verses 16 to 22. They were made fools by their spiritual blindness. They were made fools by their spiritual blindness. They were ignorant of the truth, but this truth, this lack of knowledge of the truth, made them fools. Verses 16 to 22. And as we read this, just keep in mind, this, the wording gets a little convoluted here, so I want you to just keep the big point to 16 to 22 in mind. The big point Jesus is making is, you are so blind and foolish that you don't even make sense. You don't even make sense. He says, woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Look how strong the language is here. He calls them blind. 
Again, this is going to be pretty shocking for the disciples of Jesus and the Pharisees themselves. Like blind, in other words, ignorant. That's what Jesus is saying here. You all are completely closed off to the reality. You all are completely closed off to truth. It's like, what are you talking about? These are the Pharisees. They're the ones who know so much about the word of God that they were able to draw up like the 613 laws or whatever it is. Like they're the ones who know everything. How can they be ignorant? How can they be blind? The point that Jesus is making is, what Jesus is saying here is, okay, they have all this head knowledge. And sure, they have all this memorized, but they've missed the point. They don't understand it. And their very practices here show that they don't understand it. That they've elevated their systems of religion and their laws, completely missing the point to who God really is. And who it is that would sanctify and make holy their system and their laws. And he calls them fools. The Greek word here is actually the word moron. Like literally, Jesus is saying morons. Morons. I mean, that's strong. That'll get you in trouble, right? You go walking around calling people moron. That's strong. And if you think back to Matthew 5, what did Jesus say about those who would call others fools? Jesus said, hey, don't go around you calling people, your brother fool. Sin. To go. So, so what's different here? What's different here? Well, if you go to Matthew 5, Jesus is clearly talking about sinful human anger, right? Where we get anger, angered by because our agendas aren't kept with or like somebody does something that bothers us and so we call them fool. And yes, what Jesus is saying here is there in Matthew 5 is that is sinful. But here we are talking about God's righteous anger. And what this shows us, this language, again, this um, strong wording from Jesus, it should get our attention to just how much God hates false religion. Just how much God hates his name and his gospel tarnished. The language is very harsh from Jesus, and that is on purpose. Because as people we, in our sinfulness, can spiritually fall asleep, right? We can get lethargic spiritually. And we can do it today. Undoubtedly, the people that Jesus was talking to in that audience on that day um, would have been subject to the same um, tendency to become lethargic. And this wording here should shake us out of that lethargy. It should wake us up and startle us and get our attention. It should get our attention. And again, what Jesus is showing them here in these six verses, verse, verses 16 to 22, is just how dumb and blind and shallow their religion was and how it completely misses the point. It's illogical and doesn't even make sense. The, the, they had devolved in their spiritual thinking to these superficial, silly rules. If you swear by the temple, it is nothing. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, it is something. Okay, well, that doesn't really make sense, right? Because what makes anything holy, what sanctifies anything, is God. 
And so if God is the sanctifying force behind everything, then the temple which represents God is much more important than the gold. Your spiritual blindness has made your whole system foolish. That's what he's saying in verse 17. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the God or the gold or the temple which sanctifies the gold? Then he goes on again. Whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the altar or the offering or the altar that sanctifies the gold? the offering. Again, the altar represents the sanctifying force and power of God. They had put the emphasis in their religion on the process, the rules, the system, and taking the attention off of what really mattered, the sanctifying power, presence, and reality of God. God is the true source of holiness and sanctification, not their foolish and incorrectly understood system of religion, that is the point that Jesus is making. And that brings us to our fifth and final woe that we'll look at today. Legalism is not true righteousness. Legalism is not true righteousness. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, dill and cumin, if you want to know what those are, go look at the spice rack at home, okay? You probably got some in your kitchen. There's a good chance. Go look at it, and what you'll see is they are very little bitty spices. So when it came to tithing, these people were so legalistic about their tithing that they would go to the most minute detail, like these little bitty spices, and be sure to just carve out 10% to to give to the temple right so like they're following from a legalistic standpoint everything down to the smallest detail yet they're looking at the smallest detail and completely forget the big picture about who God is and who God really wants us to be as followers of his he says Jesus says in verse 23 you tithe mint and dill you pay attention to these small little bitty details and you neglect the bigger picture, you neglect the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Think about how much harder it is to be just, merciful, and faithful versus tithing the little things, little bits of legalism. One is much harder than the other, right? Because you can go give your little 10%, You can go give your tithe and then just go off and live for yourself. I mean, what's 10%, right? You can go off and just have no heart change and just live for yourself. But for you to live with justice, faith, humility towards love and love towards one another, what's that take? That takes true heart change, true sacrifice, true dying to yourself to follow Jesus Christ. 
You see, they might have had this big system of legalism that looked impressive, but really what they were doing was the easy thing. Following these systems of legalism, that's the easy thing. The hard part is dying to yourself. For us today, we could, we could translate it this way. Like for us to come and just do the church thing, you know, even show up early, help set up, and you get involved and do all this stuff, but then you go off and just live your life for yourself, that's the easy thing. The hard thing is to say, you know, I want to take up my cross daily, die to myself, and give my life to Jesus Christ. That's the hard thing. But what does Christ call from us? Do you think Christ wants your meticulous, nuanced system of obedience? Or do you think he wants your life, your heart, your soul, your mind, every bit of your being? That's what he wants. When he says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily and follow me, what's taking up your cross but dying? What's Paul say in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Be a living sacrifice. That's every bit of your being. Not your little petty symbols of obedience. Not your little petty rule following. But a life fully given, fully dedicated to Jesus Christ. Anything else is verse 24. A straining out of a gnat to swallow the camel. You see what he's saying there? You, you, you're real careful not to have this little bitty, little bitty problem. But you're missing the big picture. You've got a much, much bigger problem. So there's two groups of us in here, right? There's only two groups in this world. There's only two groups in here. There's those who belong to Christ, who are followers of Christ, and those who are not those who are not. And those who are not, they're trying to, are, are going to be those who are still trying to earn God's favor through some form of legalism, through thinking that, you know, if I just do the right things, if I serve in the church in the right way, if I'm a good enough kid, that'll make me right with God. And the answer is no. All that is going to do is put you in the same category as the Pharisees. It's going to make you prideful. It's going to make you a hypocrite because true righteousness will never be inside of you until Jesus Christ changes your heart and your life. And all it is going to do is devolve like the Pharisees into a foolish, legalistic system of self-righteousness. And the woes of the Pharisees are the exact same woes that Jesus would apply to you. Because the only outcome is eternal destruction and eternal death. The eternal process of dying. Eternally separated from God who is the only source of life. And the application here that Jesus would have for you is to repent. Recognize true righteousness is only through him that we are all woefully sinful and in need of a Savior. And he offers that salvation to any who would come to him in faith. Ask for forgiveness. Give your life to Christ and be saved. But this applies to the second category of us in here. Those who are followers of Christ, those who have come to that place, there's still 
a lot for us to learn from the Pharisees' examples, right? Because this is a tendency that can still creep into our lives. And the challenge for us is don't fall back into pride. Don't fall back into hypocrisy. Don't fall back into legalism. It's easy to do. It's easy when things seem to be going good to think, you know, I'm pretty good at this. I'm a pretty good guy, pretty good kid. It's easy to fall back into hypocrisy. The call for us is to continue to pursue Christ. And I love the way Paul told the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation, not for your salvation. They had salvation. It's clear from Philippians. Paul was talking to a group that had salvation. He says, work out that salvation that you already have with fear and trembling. What he means by that is every bit of your being. Pursue Christ with every bit of your being. But do it in full reliance on the power and grace that God gives us. That's what Paul tells them. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And that's the message for us. Pursue Christ with every bit of your being, but in full reliance and recognition that it's only the power and work and grace of God in your life that is going to give fruit to that that is going to give success to that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just your powerful words, Lord, and how you um, <clears throat> speak to us in such powerful language, and you do it to wake us up and to get our attention. And I just pray that we would give you that attention and that, Spirit, you would continue to produce fruit in our lives, um, grow us in our love for you and obedience to you, and help us to be um, an encourager and um, builder up of those who are around us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.